please be seated. Now that third stanza, I don't know if the author of this hymn had Hebrews 1 and 2 in mind when he wrote it, but it seems to echo what we've seen over the last few weeks in the book of Hebrews. Fair is the sunshine, fair is the moonlight, and all the twinkly starry hosts. Jesus shines brighter, Jesus shines purer than all the angels heaven can boast. And if you remember what we've been looking at in Hebrews, it's been a comparison between the Lord Jesus and the angels. And what we were told is that Jesus is exponentially more glorious than even the angels. Let's go to Christ now and ask his blessing upon our study of his word that we may behold some aspect of his glorious beauty. Father in heaven, we come to you and we long to see Jesus. We long to see him in his, in his beauty. We long to see him in his power. We long to leave this place in awe of his goodness. Lord, it is not anything that we can stir up in ourselves or that I as a, a preacher of your word can affect. Lord, you alone can do that. And so would you work mightily through your word to give us some refracted beam of the brilliant glory of Christ as he stands even now in your throne room and ever lives to intercede for us. We pray this with confidence because of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Take out your copy of God's Word, if you would, and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. If you're using the Bible in your rows, you'll find our text for today on page 1002. And this is, just a reminder, we're working verse by verse through Hebrews. This is our fifth sermon but today, the author of Hebrews, which I've, I've contended is the pastor of a congregation of, of believers who are drifting or are in danger of drifting, he's going to introduce to them a new theme that is going to carry us through to the end of the book, a new idea. And, and that idea is that Jesus is our great high priest. The term great high priest is one of many titles given to the Lord Jesus in Scripture, and it's a very important title. But I suppose probably most of us didn't wake up today thinking, I can't wait to go worship my great high priest. You might have thought about Jesus as Lord or as Savior, Son of God. There's so many titles given to Jesus, and I wonder if many of us give much thought to this idea of Jesus as our great high priest. I, I tend to think this is a title of Christ that receives so little attention today because we're not really sure what a high priest is. We're not really sure what a high priest does or why it matters that we have one. But this pastor, as he's writing to his dear flock, whom he sees as being in danger of drifting away from the gospel, his whole argument that's going to carry us through the rest of this book is you need to remain anchored to your great high priest, Jesus Christ. In fact, uh, think of it this way. Of all the titles given to Jesus in Scripture, this is the only one that has an entire book of the Bible devoted to it. 
That's how important this title of great high priest is today. And we're going to see it often in Hebrews. But what I'm going to do today is lay a foundation of who Jesus is as our great high priest and what he's done and even what he's doing today as our great high priest. And I think this will help us as we move ahead in the coming weeks. So listen very carefully. This is God's word. It is from the heart of God to the people of God. Hebrews chapter 2, starting at verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he sanctifies, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I'll tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I'll sing your praise. We saw that just a few minutes ago in in Psalm 22. Verse 13, and again, I'll put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Therefore, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted... He's able to help those who are being tempted. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. At our presbytery, it's known as Low Country Presbytery, I lead a committee known as Candidates and Credentials Committee. And our job is to give very in-depth examinations to men who are candidates for ministry. So men who believe the Lord may be calling them to gospel ministry, they come through our committee. And I can say without reservation, it is a fair but tough process. And one of the sections on the Bible exam is an, a, a section where you're given a book of the Bible and you're told to outline that book of the Bible chapter by chapter. Now, every incoming student that we see knows that the theme of Hebrews, the big idea of Hebrews is Jesus is better. But then they come to outlining the book, and oftentimes they forget what the order was or or all of the comparisons that are made in the book of Hebrews. So they'll normally get chapter 1 right, that Jesus is better than the angels. They'll, make, they'll get chapter 3 right. Jesus is better than Moses. Well, then they just start making it up, and they start throwing out Old Testament names as far as they can think of, because it gets confusing as we work through chapter 4 and chapter 5 and chapter 6, and you see he's better than Joshua, and he's better than Aaron, and he's better than the temple. And so we start getting things like Jesus is better than Methuselah, and he's better than Balaam, and he's better than Balaam's donkey, and all sorts of other things as guys start to run out of Old Testament characters. But the point is right. The answers are wrong, but the point is right. Anything you can name, Jesus is better. And that's not just looking over the span of the Old Testament. That's true in your life. Anything, anyone, 
that you can name, Jesus is better. So whatever it is that you look to for satisfaction, whatever it is that you look to in hope, I can guarantee you Jesus is better. That's not just an answer for theological exams. That's the answer for life. Whatever you're looking to in this world to satisfy and to give you security and hope, Jesus is better. You know, I wonder if you're going to grow tired through the book of Hebrews of hearing Jesus is better. Jesus is better than Moses and better than Aaron and better than Joshua and so on. But, you know, I I can't imagine a man getting tired of hearing about how wonderful his wife is. He ought to take that as, as a tremendous encouragement when others tell him, your wife is so wonderful. I do when you tell me that about my wife. And just as I can't imagine a man growing tired of hearing that, I can't imagine a Christian getting tired of hearing about the excellency and the superiority of Jesus Christ. And so just a warning, just a spoiler alert, every sermon for the rest of this book, it's going to have the words, Jesus is better in it. And I trust you won't grow tired. But even as we boast here in the glory of Jesus Christ, we need to realize that there is something that Jesus, even in that glorious divinity that we saw back in chapter 1, there is something that even Jesus could not do. He could not achieve our salvation. He couldn't accomplish our salvation without becoming our great high priest. This is why the Lord Jesus took on real human flesh. And just think about it. He was created within a womb that he himself had created. He was born under the law that he himself had written. He who spoke the world into existence stood silent before his accusers, and the Lord of life would eventually succumb to death. He did all of this as our great high priest. Now, as Protestants, we're often not sure what to think about priests. We don't have priests. I'm not a priest. So what do priests do? A priest goes to God on behalf of another person pleading for them and making sacrifices on their behalf. So think in terms of the legal system. We have several lawyers in here. If there were charges against me that were going to bring me into the courtroom, I would not want to represent myself. I need someone who has knowledge of the law and how courts work, and someone who could make a compelling argument on my behalf. Well, just think about the courtroom of God, the God who, as I said earlier, has seen everything you've done, has heard every thought you've ever had, and he stands as judge before us. If you and I march into that courtroom and we try to stand on our own merits before God and make our own arguments using our own cleverness, the verdict is absolutely going to be guilty. And so in the Old Testament, the high priest's job was to represent the people before God, 
to go to God and make sacrifices on behalf of the people. The Day of Atonement that we see in Leviticus 16. The, the high priest would enter into the holiest part of the temple with the blood of a sacrifice. And he would sprinkle the blood upon the mercy seat for the people. This was the center of Old Testament Jewish life, that the priest would, would seek to make atonement for the people. But as important as the Old Testament high priest was, he had certain limitations. For one thing, he was a sinner. And so, not only did he have to make a sacrifice for the people when he went into the most holy place, but he could only do it once a year, and he had to make a sacrifice for himself first. And his second limitation was that he was either going to have to retire at age 50 or he was going to die from being a priest, whichever came first. And so he couldn't be an eternal priest who would ever live to intercede for the people. He was going to die. But the sacrifices or the need of sacrifices was never going to stop. And so another high priest would come and another high priest would come and so on. In the final analysis, the Old Testament high priest was really just a nagging reminder to the people that they needed a better high priest. In other words, if, if they had the high priest they needed, it wouldn't have to happen every year, and they would be able to march right into the most holy place in the temple. But because they had a, a weak, a, a sinful high priest, they couldn't do those things, and the sacrifices had to be made again and again and again. They needed a better high priest, or what Hebrews 4 is going to call a great high priest. That's the Lord Jesus. Don't get lost in the technicalities of priestly language, please. It's, it's not language of religious technicality. It's language of deep, sovereign love from Christ towards his people, that he became our great high priest. And this morning, we're going to focus our attention on the high priesthood of Christ, and there's three things that I want you to see. First is that Jesus is our great high priest, and we're just going to look at what that means. Second, we're going to look at what our great high priest has done for us. And then third, we're going to look at what he's doing for us right this moment. So first, look at what it means that Jesus is our great high priest. And look back with me in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 28. This is speaking of Aaron. Aaron was the first of the high priests in the Old Testament, and it's telling what kind of garments Aaron was to have. He was to be unique. He was set apart. He was consecrated among God's people, and that was reflected in his clothing. So Exodus 28, starting at verse 1, then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill that they, uh, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. And then the rest of the chapter is going to go on and talk about the garments. This was garments of finest white linen and, and blue, scar, uh, blue and purple and scarlet cloth, and it was all interwoven with this expensive gold 
thread, and then he had the ephod, um, and then he had the breastplate. And it's all extremely exquisite and expensive. And it was topped off with a turban with a gold metal plate on it that said, Holy to the Lord. This was a brilliant scene. It set Aaron, or whoever the high priest at the time was, apart from all of Israel with this beauty and this extravagant expense that was invested into these outward adornments. And the message is striking but clear. Israel can only come to God through this high priest, and we do so at great expense. Now, for all the priestly beauty uh, of, of the Aaronic garments, they were just an outward picture of how extraordinarily beautiful Jesus Christ is, how wonderful He is. That's why we just sang, Fairest Lord Jesus, and you compare Jesus to all these things in nature and even in the supernatural world, and we find that Jesus is above and beyond all those things in his beauty. He didn't need the beauty of outward garments because his beauty was inward as the Son of God. We, we saw this in, in chapter 1. We saw how highly exalted he was above all the angels and the heavenly hosts. But here's what we see in chapter 2. We see how low he came at much cost to himself. So whereas the Old Testament priestly uh, garments were expensive and the people paid for it, for Christ to be our great high priest with beauty that exceeded anything man could make, it was at his own expense that he came to us. He's the one that bore the cost. He took on human flesh. Look at verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, that's talking about us, he himself likewise partook of the same things. There's a question I'm sometimes asked, and it's a good question. You've probably thought about it before. If God is sovereign, why couldn't he just pronounce our sins forgiven? Why did Jesus have to come to earth and bear our sins? Why couldn't God just, uh, the same God who created the world by a word, why couldn't he just make a pronouncement that these people are forgiven? Have you ever thought about that? What would happen if in the courtroom of God all our sins were laid out and there's a rap sheet against us a mile high And God said to us, I'll just ignore that. He'd be an unjust judge, wouldn't he? Think of a courtroom where a serial killer is on trial, and the families of the victims are all watching on, and the case has been made. Everyone knows he's guilty. In fact, the judge pronounces him guilty, but says, I'm going to let you walk anyways. That would be a miscarriage of justice. If God simply ignored our sins, it would have been the greatest miscarriage of justice in the history of the world. God himself would have been unjust if he just ignored our sins. And so we have a question. How does this God condemn sin that he hates so much 
while redeeming the people that he loves so much? We see the answer there in verse 17. Speaking of Christ, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. In order for Jesus to serve as our high priest and to serve God where we have failed, the Son of God had to take on real human flesh. Sin had to be dealt with. It had to be laid on someone's head. Jesus had to represent human nature in every way. Now, it's interesting. He's like us in every way, except he never sins. That tells us what sin is. Sin is not natural to us. Sin is us at our most unhuman our most subhuman. This is why we don't identify ourselves with our sins. But Christ became like us in every way so that he could do what the blood of bulls and goats couldn't do, what Moses couldn't do, what Aaron couldn't do, what none of the Old Testament could do. Take away our sin. And so the glorious Son of God, exalted above all the angels in the heavenly host, stooped low at much expense to himself. Hebrews 1 affirmed his divinity. Hebrews 2 affirms his humanity, that the Son took on true human nature to save us. Now let that sink in for a moment, because I know we have people in here who struggle with with things, and you look at everybody else and you say, you just don't know how it feels to be me. And it may be loneliness, it may be depression, it may be any number of things. And you look around and you feel like a foreigner. You feel like nobody else gets it. Guess what? Jesus Christ looks at you and he says, I get it. He is like you in every way except for sin. He knows temptation. He knows betrayal. He knows suffering. He knows what it is to be hungry, to be lonely, to be grieved, to be tired. He knows what it's like to be you. He had to in every way in order to be our high priest. And so this pastor who's talking to his beloved flock, some of whom are going through great suffering and loss for Christ's sake, is saying to them, Beloved, there is one seated on the throne in heaven right now. He's adorned with majesty, but he's not aloof. He's not unconcerned. He's not distant. He is still the same Jesus who walked the earth, who loves us with the strongest love possible. We talk about the infinitude of God a lot. Do you realize that the infinitude of God stretches to God's love for his elect, that God could not possibly love his people more than he does? That's a picture of Jesus Christ. We know how loving he was on earth, but when he ascended, he didn't leave his tender heart towards you behind. As our great high priest, his love for us has not waned one bit. This means that we can approach the throne of grace where Jesus is, and we do so with tremendous confidence because we have a great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, who represents us at the throne of God. Jesus is indeed our great high priest. Now, second, what did Jesus do 
as our great high priest. Let's talk about what he's done for us. Sometimes this is called the finished work of Christ, what Christ has accomplished for his people. And this text tells us several things. Look at verse 10. We have a great high priest who suffered for us. Verse 10 uses interesting language there. It says he was made perfect in suffering or through suffering. Now, what does that mean? Certainly, it doesn't mean that Jesus needed moral improvement. The scriptures are clear that Jesus is morally perfect. What's being said here is that in order to be our perfect high priest, he had to fulfill certain things, and part of that was obedience even in suffering upon the cross. And as he suffered unto death on the cross, he was perfectly fitted to be our representative because he put on the sufferings that we deserve because of our sin. Consider the depth of Jesus' suffering physical, relational, spiritual suffering that he experienced, the pain of forsakenness, the pain of betrayal, the physical pain of the cross, these things Jesus suffered for us, for our sake, because he represented us as our great high priest. So first he suffered, and then second in verse 14, we're told that through death, he destroyed the, power, uh, the one who has the power of death. That's speaking of Satan there. And it doesn't mean that Satan is sovereign over our moment of death. He, he has no control of our moment of life or death. God alone does. It rather means that Satan's purpose is to lure us and tempt us into sin to our own destruction. It is through sin that death enters the world. And so the only thing Satan can offer is ultimately death. Jesus said that he came to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what Jesus, that's what the serpent does. That's what Satan does. And so he has this power of death. Death is the result of rebellion against God. And that means the only way that we can be liberated from the, the, the sin death that we deserve is for death itself to be destroyed. When Jesus died, he broke the power of sin and destroyed death. It no longer can do what it once did. Do you realize how Jesus has transformed death? That should transform us because if Jesus hadn't died for our sake, if Jesus had not broken the bonds of death, you and I ought to live every day with tremendous fear of death because we're not promised tomorrow. And if we are still in our sins and if Jesus had not uh, come to set us free every day, we should live in terror. And that's what it talks about here. Look at verse 15 that Christ delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You know, that's what workspace religion is. It's the thought that I can avoid what's due to me at death because of my sin by doing enough good works. If I'm a good enough person, then I can avoid this death that I am so terrified of and the judgment that follows. 
He has delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Do you think that might have been a liberating thing for these believers to hear? These believers who knew that on the horizon was a good possibility some of them were going to die because of their faith in Christ. They saw it coming. They could, in a sense, see the enemy marching towards them. Some of them would die because of their faith in Christ. Some of them, for that very reason, were thinking of turning away, that it wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth the cost of following Christ. But the fact that Jesus defeated death should radically change us. Death is no longer our enemy. You think of what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To die is victory. You know, we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be reckless with our lives, certainly, we ought to seek to preserve our lives so that we can be good stewards of what God has entrusted us for as long as possible. But we ought to live bravely and unafraid for the sake of Christ, knowing that death has no power over us. It doesn't mean you won't die, but it means that when you close your eyelids this side of glory, you will wake up in the presence of Jesus Christ. That's good news. That's a joyful thing, that the bonds of death have been broken. Christ has taken the fear of death off of our shoulders so that we can live as men and women and children, unafraid to lay our lives down for the sake of Christ, because we know we'll live with Him forever. So He's destroyed the power of death. Third, in verse 17, we're told He made propitiation for the people. We don't use that word enough, but propitiation means Jesus' death satisfies God's wrath for sin. God is right to be angry with sin. He's a holy God, and every sin you and I have ever committed is an attack upon His holiness. Even one sin deserves death. But propitiation, when it says that He made propitiation, it means that every ounce of God's wrath was poured out upon Jesus Christ for the sake of the church. God's people, past, present, and future, our sins were poured out upon Jesus on the cross. That's what propitiation means, that Christ on the cross carried our sins before God, and God poured His wrath out upon the head of Jesus Christ for us. Christ's death was a real punishment for real sins of particular chosen sinners, and it accomplished real salvation for us because the wrath of God was satisfied. That's the truth upon which a believer lives and dies, that my sins were paid for by Jesus Christ. Let's make this personal. If you're a Christian, if your image is that there's a God in heaven who is just disappointed in you, who's just waiting for you to finally get your life together, then that is a false God. If you're a Christian, then what you see in Jesus Christ is God's disposition towards you. If you're a Christian, there is no angry, disappointed God waiting for you to get your act in order. There's not a God waiting 
for your life to fall apart. Get even with you. Because his wrath for your sin has been poured out on Jesus. Christ received the curse, and what's left for us is the blessing. I want to make this as simple as I can. Every person in this room is one day going to stand before God, and some are going to stand before God dead in their sins, covered in their sins. To those people, I say, fear death and run to Jesus because you cannot make atonement yourself, but you will one day stand before God. It is appointed once for a man to die and then comes judgment. If you're not a Christian, you will stand before God in the condemnation of your sins. But if you are a Christian, then Jesus has taken all of that and all that God has left for you is deep abiding love and grace. Believers and unbelievers alike will stand before God and some will stand before him under condemnation and others will stand before him and enjoy for all eternity his benediction because Christ is our propitiation. It is a joyful thing to be brought into the presence of God when we come through Jesus Christ. Because what we receive is the fullness of the infinite love of God because the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. That's the finished work of, of Christ on our behalf. But we need to understand that when Jesus ascended, he didn't go fix his eyes on other projects and forget about us. Uh, Jesus Christ is still in this very moment laboring for us. And so we spoke about the finished work of Christ. This is what we could call the unfinished work of Christ. What Jesus is doing right now for his church, for you as believers. We think a lot about what he's done in the past. We think about the future. But what is Jesus doing right now? We see several things here. First, we see that he is representing us as our elder brother. Look, look, look at verse 11, latter part. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus calls you brother. This very moment, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God because his atoning work is complete. Our firstborn brother, our elder brother, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. One of the things that people that aren't from the South always remark on about the South is they'll sometimes accuse Southerners of ancestor worship. Because in the South, we tend to love our genealogies and going back as far as we can to trace who our ancestors were and, and who this person's grandfather, great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather was, and so on. And there can be real benefits in knowing our heritage. In fact, there, there's people in this congregation who, by virtue of who their ancestors were, who their relatives were that have gone before them, have received entrance into to societies and to, to organizations by virtue of family relationships. Beloved, the most important family relationship you can have is whether or not Jesus Christ is your elder brother. Uh, 
back in verse 10, it, it calls him the founder of their salvation. That word founder might better be translated as pioneer. What does a pioneer do? He goes before us, and, and then we follow him in. Jesus Christ has gone before us into the presence of God, giving us assurance that a man can stand in God's presence. He's our elder brother. We have a common bloodline with Jesus Christ. It's his blood upon us. So the first thing is, is he's, he's representing us. He's, he's standing for us in heaven. Second, he's sanctifying his younger brothers and sisters whom he loves so dearly. Now, what does sanctify mean? It means to make holy. And so in verse 11, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have one source. He who is perfectly perfecting, uh, perfectly perfect is perfecting us as well. There's an already and a not yet aspect of this. So the not yet, you and I are so familiar with it because if you're a believer, it can be frustrating how slowly you feel like you're making progress in sanctification. You feel like you look at your life and there should be major differences from where you were a year ago or 10 years ago. And sanctification can be such a slow, clumsy process. But be assured, if you're a believer, He is working in you to will and to do according to His good pleasure. That's the not yet aspect, but there's an already aspect of our sanctification. And that is that he has sanctified you. Sometimes we'll talk and, and you'll say of somebody in this congregation, oh, he's a saint. She's a saint. Now, I, I know exactly what you mean. You mean that's a, a uniquely godly person. Do you realize, though, that if you belong to Jesus, your title in heaven is saint? That is who you are. And you're going, wow, I'm, I'm a really messy-looking saint. Yes, this side of heaven, that's true. But your status in heaven, if you're a Christian, is that you are holy. You are perfected because the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to you. So he sanctifies us. And then third, we're told here that he helps us when we are tempted. You know, these, these Hebrew believers, they know what's coming. And I think some of them are probably thinking, am I going to be able to remain faithful to Christ if it's going to cost me my job, my wealth, my social status, my life? You ever ask that question? Am I committed to the Lord Jesus in such a way that if and when those things come, I will remain committed to him no matter what it costs me? And here's what their beloved pastor tells them. Your great high priest who is ascended into heaven but is right there with you sanctifying you he will help you when you're tempted he'll help you when you're tempted to turn away look at verse 18 because he himself has suffered when tempted he's able to help those who are being tempted you remember when jesus was was tempted satan tempted christ in the wilderness and for the first time in history it didn't work somebody overpowered the sinfulness of satan 
And Jesus remained perfectly obedient to the will of God. And so when it says here that Jesus is able to help, how do we know he's able to help? Because he himself overcame temptation. And he gives you grace to fight temptation as well. In our moments of weakness, in our moments of difficulty, in our moments of temptation, Christ gladly gives us supernatural grace to fight and overcome temptation. You know, this means when you are tempted with sin or when you're tested and you don't know if your faith will stand up, Christ helps you. Never throw up your hands at the first sign of temptation. How often are we guilty of that? Because we've fallen so often in the past, whatever sin it may be, we just get discouraged and we think, I'll never overcome it. Jesus helps us. Run to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Claim this passage. Jesus, you have told me in your word that you help me when I'm tempted. Help me now, please. Jesus is not stingy with the grace to help. And what we find is that in the midst of trial and temptation, Jesus draws near to us and gives us grace. Of course, we must look to him. If we're, if we're thrusting ourselves headlong into sin and then hoping Jesus will stop us somehow, that's a fool's errand. But when we are tempted, as we look more and more to Christ in the midst of temptation, in the midst of testing, we'll find that he has great grace to help us and to protect us from sin. And so this pastor is saying to his flock, don't allow these trials and temptations to take your gaze away from Jesus. You belong to your great high priest, so look to him. Fix your eyes upon him. Don't let the trials or the threat of trials or temptation distract you from Christ. It doesn't minimize the struggles of the Christian life, but it means that whatever battle you are facing, whatever temptation or testing you're enduring, it's part of a greater battle. Our problems may indeed be large. The path ahead of us may seem uncertain, but Jesus has walked this path, and he has the grace sufficient for us day by day. We have a great high priest, and though he stands far off in heaven, he is near to us, and his gaze is upon us, and his heart is for us. I don't stand on my own before God. I stand in Christ, my great high priest who has made atonement for my sins and who now on a daily basis prays for me. We're going to be told in Hebrews, he ever lives to intercede for us. And when we are faithless, he is faithful. When we are weak, he is strong. And when we can't even utter the words to pray, Jesus prays for us. Our failures often make us hesitate to come to God, but it is in our frailty that our great high priest draws near to us. Consider this one who loves us, who loves you, believer, so much that he gave his life for you, and his love for you has not diminished one bit. 
the same love that drew Christ from heaven to the womb of the virgin, from the womb to the cross, and from the cross to the grave is fixed upon you from heaven, holding a place for you, sanctifying you, and helping you in your moment of trial and temptation. How do we apply this text? A couple of quick applications. First, look at verse 11. I think it's a loaded verse. The end of it there, it says, that's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. I say it's a loaded verse because I think the author of Hebrews has in mind Jesus' words in Mark 8, 38. Listen to this. Jesus said, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes into the glory of his Father with the, heavenly, with the holy angels. The connection is clear. If Jesus isn't ashamed to call us brothers, then we must not be ashamed to call him Lord no matter what this adulterous generation may bring. Second application This passage has implications for why we ought not use images of Jesus in worship. Now, I just want you to follow a train of thought here. The second commandment forbids using images of God. Now, sometimes people will will have images of Jesus and they'll say, well, this this is just the humanity of Jesus. It's not his divinity. But remember... Jesus didn't put on human flesh like I put on this jacket this morning and then take it off. Jesus is God and man. So if you're looking at a picture and you say, this is just the humanity of Jesus, that's not the Jesus of Scripture. His humanity and his divinity cannot be separated. And so images of Jesus are a violation of the second commandment. You cannot separate the humanity and the divinity of Christ. Third, final application, and I think this has probably already hit many of us in the eyes after the last two years or so that we've had as a culture that was driven by absolute fear of sickness and death. It is an affront to God to live in the fear of death. When when we are paralyzed by the fear of death, we're saying, Jesus, you really didn't conquer death for my sake. If you profess to be a Christian, but you're captive to the fear of death so much so that you've not been able to serve your church or love your neighbor over these past two years, I want to plead with you to repent. The And we need to do that now because our politicians and our news media have figured out what a powerful tool fear of death is. And if it's not monkeypox next, it's going to be something else. As believers, we need to fully understand in our hearts that God has broken the chains of sin and death through Jesus Christ. And so for you and me to be fearful of death is an affront saying to him, your work was not enough, Jesus. Because Christ conquered the power of death, no Christian needs to be afraid of death. We can face death without fear because Christ has been there, and he has conquered. And through death, he takes us home. 
And so, beloved, if, if, if this is you, if you have struggled with this fear of death, particularly over these last couple of years, turn from it and bravely follow Jesus who has walked this path before us. And we know with great uncertainty that when our eyelids close in death, we will open them to the beatific vision of the glory of Christ in heaven. Let's pray together. Lord, this is a depth of theology that most of us are not accustomed to thinking about. And yet, it's what you have laid out for us in Scripture as we see the beauty of Jesus Christ and not just who he is, but what he has done and what he continues to do for us. Lord, captivate us with our great high priest, the one who looks like us and yet stands there in heaven. And we see five wounds even there in heaven that guarantee us that our elder brother has gone before us and those bleeding wounds he bare proclaim that we too shall be with him. Father, we long for that day because you've broken the power of death. We long for that day when our eyelids close and we get to see Jesus face to face. Oh Lord, I do pray that if there is anyone in this room who does not know Christ, Lord, that you would strike them with fear of death until they run to Jesus, that you would give them no relief until they see that Jesus alone is able to help them 